This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Herring all but disappeared from the shorelines around Squamish, B.C. in the mid-1970s. Locals are monitoring signs of hope of their return. Matt Spears reads, Are Herring Making a Comeback in B.C.? This is an article titled, Are Herring Making a Comeback in B.C.? by Lauren Calger. This story was originally published as Welcoming Herring Home by our friends at Hakai Magazine. It's being used here with permission. Johnny Williams squeezes into a soaped-up wetsuit near the base of British Columbia's Tantalus Range, a series of 2,000-plus-meter peaks that give rise to the region's moniker, Sea to Sky. The water he slips into is like glass, an unexpected gift in a glacier-etched fjord known to funnel high winds. As he kicks his fins along the shoreline, jets of seawater sparkle as they meet the sun. A while later, he bobs back up and yells, I almost smoked my head. With plankton in bloom, visibility in the shallow water is an arm's length ahead, and rocks seem to come out of nowhere. It's Temthlout, the time of the herring, in the heart of Squamish homelands. In early spring, the small team of young citizen scientists Williams belongs to fires up the outboard engine and zips an aluminum boat to locations along the steep western wall of these shores. At each stop, Someone suits up, dives in, and scans every nook, searching for signs of a population of herring that Fisheries and Oceans Canada deems too peripheral for regular monitoring. From above, Howe Sound, known as Atkatsum, among other names, looks like an open crab claw with a meandering, river-fed arm. Tucked into the base of its arm is the district of Squamish, an old mill town turned Lux outdoor haven midway between Vancouver and Whistler, that colonizes the name Squamish. Where the crab claw meets the Salish Sea, the pinchers hook around a cluster of islands. The spectacle of herring spawn, adult fish returning to these shores to blanket tens of thousands of egg with a milky, turquoise cloud of seminal fluid known as milt, is over in a matter of days. Some of the eggs, glommed onto vegetation such as rockweed, will be fertilized. And if the waves that wash across them are gentle and predators stay away, larval fish will emerge. To me, the clear bubble-like eggs the size of millet that William searches for seem too minuscule to be much of consequence in Adkatsum. But to Williams and the four other citizen scientists who make up the core herring search team, knowing where these eggs land and flourish enables them to put a finger to the pulse of a waterway that environmentalists once declared dead. The ghosts of resource extraction surround us. Two pulp mills that choke the sound with logs and bleaching agents like chlorine dioxide, chemical plants that leached mercury, underwater dump sites from dredged sediment, and a beachfront copper mine that was once the biggest source of toxic metals in North America's waterways. Biologists studying herring can't say specifically how these industries correlate with the fish's health, but locals are confident that the impact from past industrial practices was only negative. Looking around at rusty chemical tanks and other remains along the shores, it's hard to imagine herring choose to surrender their eggs to these shallows at all. 
Pacific herring in this northern part of the Salish Sea, where the Atkatsum claw sits, appear to be faring better in general than those farther south, though many former spawning sites beyond Atkatsum are abandoned in the stretch of water between the city of Vancouver and Vancouver Island. Herring all but disappeared from the shorelines around Squamish in the mid-1970s, likely due to overfishing and the mess industrialists made of spawning sites. Environmental regulations such as limits on how pulp mills could dump bleaching agents into the ocean starting in the late 1980s, followed by the shutdown of some major operations, have coaxed herring back to some of their former shoreline nurseries in Atkatsum and boosted their chances of survival. Locals started keeping an eye on the fledgling herring in this area in the early 2010s. Over the years, environmental groups and Squamish Nation have worked on additional conservation efforts in cooperation with local industry, such as ensuring that toxic pilings are wrapped with protective materials to prevent herring eggs from dying. Just as the combined effects of development and extraction once smothered these shoreline habitats, hopefully now the cumulative effect of many efforts to restore them will preserve a precarious rebound for herring. In recent years, locals have witnessed additional signs that the ecosystem is rebounding. The return of dolphins, porpoises, humpbacks, and killer whales after a nearly 100-year-long absence. Herring are still up against far-reaching forces here. The fjord is acidifying, deoxygenating, and warming quickly. Marine biologists aren't sure if the herring's return will be short-lived or represents a sustained comeback. The most straightforward way to know is to track where the fish leave eggs and how they fare each spring. That work falls to Williams and his fellow citizen scientists. A contingent of volunteers also monitors the spring spawn by bushwhacking the Squamish estuary in waders. The overall initiative bears a sense of urgency. While the largest beachfront mills and mines have shuttered, a new era of oceanfront development is unfolding, with blueprints having been drawn for luxury apartments and a liquefied natural gas facility. As the team finds spawning locations and gathers supporting data, they funnel the information to biologists at the conservation organization at Katsum Howe Sound Marine Stewardship Initiative, MSI. By knowing where herring spawn, roughly how many eggs are produced, and how they develop, scientists will have a baseline to compare future changes against. Observations about how any new industrial activity impacts herring at their favored spawn sites can also help advocates fight for more habitat protection. The herring search team does most of its work scanning the sound for thlout on evenings and weekends. Three young Squamish members, including Williams and a herring survey coordinator, are paid with funds raised through MSI, but their work is supported by community generosity. Their wetsuits are donated by a local dive company. Conservation groups, as well as people like Neil Baker, a Squamish fisherman, offer supplies and knowledge about local herring and the ecosystem, and the boats the team uses are provided by the Squamish Nation. But the search for flout, as the herring project is known, is about more than the forage fish. One of the wider goals is to restore people's relationship with the sound. For millennia, the spring journey of flout back to their spawning areas marked the first feast after a long winter for humans and marine beings alike, 
from seabirds to eagles to porpoises. Communities held ceremonies in late winter that helped welcome flout home. Roe was gathered and eaten fresh, dried, or smoked, sometimes with salmonberry shoots. In recent history, colonial policies aimed at severing Squamish people's relationship with their territory to extract wealth limited how these first stewards could carry out their traditions of monitoring and harvesting along the shores. As flout disappeared, so did salmon and more. The return of flout restores relationships between the fish and other species, including the humans who may encourage or impede their survival. In between shoreline snorkels, 24-year-old Williams and two other young Squamish members on the survey team learned to operate the vessel, identify flora and fauna, and set crab and prawn traps to harvest food for family and friends, experiences they might not otherwise have access to. Some team members speak Squamish as they work, reuniting words with the practices that gave rise to them. The search for flout feeds a new generation of Squamish stewardship. The young surveyors are supported by Matthew Van Oostem, a commercial fisherman turned schoolteacher of Dutch and French ancestry who has spent six years working under the direction of Squamish community members and elders. His current role is that of a land-based education coordinator for kindergarten to grade 10 students at Stawamish School, where he bridges Squamish and settler ways of knowing. One of his initiatives is to adapt the community's teachings into learning activities for younger students, guided by Williams's mother, Charlene Williams. On a typical school day, Van Oostem is out with the kids skinning river otters, teaching knife skills, smoking salmon, or collecting oyster shells to make shell phones. To Van Oostem's younger students, Flout is known as Harriet the Herring, a googly-eyed character inspired by a film made by B.C. naturalist Brioni Penn. Harriet writes letters, which Van Oostem reads aloud, about her travels and the ecosystem she supports. The Search for Flout team's surveys inform Harriet's itinerary. In February, she wrote a letter to the kids telling them not to worry, that she was on her way. Although I'm out with the survey team on a Squamish Thunderbird-emblazoned vessel in early April, relatively late in a typical spawning season, Williams and the others have seen little sign of spawn. The cycle of flout is unpredictable, influenced by a symphony of events led by an unknown conductor. Van Oostem has playfully distributed missing posters throughout the school. The search for flout began as a request from elders. Keo Will Robert Baker and others wanted to see a traditional harvest of herring roe on hemlock branches led by youth and the wider community once more. As a staple food source for First Nations along the Pacific coast, herring eggs are typically collected in clumps from racks of kelp fronds or boughs of coniferous trees placed in shallow water. At the time of Baker's request, Van Oostem and his guide Charlene didn't know much about flout or where they could be found. As Charlene reached out to other Squamish elders with first-hand knowledge, Van Oostem phoned a couple of local conservation organizations and asked if anyone knew anything about the foundational fish. Through Squamish streamkeepers, he met John Buchanan, a long-serving citizen scientist and self-described environmental cop who has voluntarily monitored from his boat for over a decade where local herring spawn. Over coffee, he basically knowledge-bombed me with, like, 12 years of herring data, recalls Van Oostem. 
Armed with Buchanan's maps of shoreline spawning sites, blue lines for sites surveyed and red lines for sites with spawn, overlaid on a Google Earth map of the sound, Van Oostem scoped spots along the glacially steepened west wall of Atkatsum in his small boat to familiarize himself with the fish. Soon, Buchanan encouraged him to take over the herring surveys, and Van Oostem invited Johnny Williams to join him. At the time, Williams was working with MSI as an Indigenous Youth Engagement Coordinator. Through family and friends, he helped arrange their use of Squamish Nation-owned vessels and recruited the other members of the Corps survey team. That first spring of Search for Flout in 2019, students led a ceremony just as elders had requested. They chose Nexon Beach, where a chemical plant once produced bleaching agents for the pulp and paper industry. After learning about the importance of flout in the ecosystem and Squamish ways of harvesting roe, kids sang songs welcoming flout. They made racks from hemlock branches and draped them in the intertidal zone with rope. At the time, even Buchanan was skeptical. He thought the odds of collecting roe from Nexon Beach were slim. The group returned a week later to find the boughs heavily cloaked in eggs. For the first time in living memory, community members tasted herring roe from the sound, a delicacy the kids described as salty popcorn. A developer has since filled this site with sand and dirt to make way for a four-and-a-half-hectare oceanfront park, part of a multi-million dollar development set to house 6,500 residents. Out on the water, Williams climbs back onto the boat and changes into sweatpants bannered with tribal journeys the name of a festival he participated in, paddling hundreds of kilometers in a dugout canoe. Vivian Joseph, sporting a camo hoodie and round glasses that frame soft brown eyes, cuts the engine as she expertly steers into an alcove raised by thousands of years of rushing water. The surge of creek water from deeper within this cathedral drowns the sound of planes above. With the tide still low, a band of curled, pasta-like rockweed marks the high tide line, centimeters above the water. See the spawn, Van Oostem asks, gesturing to the rockweed. I squint and lean closer. Joseph, who is 30 years old, calmly noses the boat right up to the cliff so Van Oostem can reach out and pull a piece of rockweed. Kieran Brownie, a local photographer who joins the trips to lend a hand, points out that it's possible to make out eyes on a few of the tiny eggs. But only a small percentage of these eggs are developing into larvae. The rest have died. Van Oostem speculates that the rushing creek water may have impeded fertilization. As we exit the alcove, William spots a good cliff to jump from when the weather warms. Though, on second thought, he decides it's maybe a little too high. Last year, to celebrate the end of survey season, Van Oostem and Williams jumped from a nearby lower cliff. A big part of this project is having fun, says Van Oostem. His allegiance is to young people and the ecosystems they're related to. Laughter facilitates these connections. The survey team, which is Joseph and Williams today, records the GPS coordinates of each spawning location they find, and Van Oostem measures the water temperature, 4.7 degrees, and takes note of the weather and how the larvae are developing. He'll summarize the findings in a daily report and share it with the MSI biologists as well as an email list and a lively Facebook group, 
where Squamish elders and Herring fans can pepper posts with comments. The team's three years of data, along with Buchanan's from previous years, is now among several hundred open-source data sets hosted in a new interactive and interdisciplinary map of Atkatsim, put together by MSI, that reveals everything from Squamish place names to at-risk eelgrass beds and rare pockets of glass sponge reefs, which formed over thousands of years. These efforts contributed to the region's designation as Canada's 19th UNESCO Biosphere region last year. For Van Oostem's turn to get in the water and conduct a survey, we're near Swiat, a spiritual place now occupied by relics of a pulp mill. As Joseph trails the boat behind Van Oostem and an entourage of sea lions, Williams sits on the stern rubbing his hands together, though he says the cold doesn't bother him. Edkatsum was the original water-based highway between winter and summer villages in the Salish Sea, he reminds me. Elders talk about 50-year-old women canoeing the roughly 70-kilometer stretch to Vancouver and back in one day. My people had to be tough. During regular work hours, William works for Tanawa Yusta Stutunsum, Squamish Nation's Rights and Title Department, whose name translates to the ones who take care of what was handed down or what will be handed down. He just finished an environmental technician course and plans to get his scuba ticket. He wants to work on the water protecting his homelands and get paid for it. If we don't, who will? Joseph shares Williams's sentiment. At the time of our outing, she was a fish enumerator for Squamish Nation, walking the rivers to monitor fish mortality. Before the herring surveys, she'd never been out on the ocean aside from an occasional ferry trip. Now she's learning about how much marine life is connected to the little eggs they track, like killer whales and dolphins. As the wind kicks up, the clouds eject hail, so we throttle back to the harbor. A discussion ensues about who should be given the ice cream pail of prawns and five large crabs the team has gathered throughout the day while their surveys were underway. Fisherman Neil Baker gets a few for sure, since he provided the bait and traps. A week later, Van Oostem will set out in a canoe to pull a bow from this year's harvest location, Stowamis, the oldest Squamish village and one of several reserves in this part of the territory. In the video he posts to Facebook, a row of students leans over the railing at a dock to watch. You guys want to taste a little bit? Van Oostem asks, holding up a hemlock branch glutted in milky roe. Yeah, the kids cry in unison. He gathers a bucket of hemlock sprigs, one for each student, but leaves the dozens of remaining branches drifting in the water. If conditions permit, some of the eggs clinging to them might hatch, mature, and spawn, and a new generation of stewards will welcome them home. That was an article titled, Our Herring Making a Comeback in B.C., by Lauren Calger. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Bill Shackleton and Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more.
Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.